Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Beach. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Scarlet City. And when I was a freshman, I took a biology class at Ohio State. And in one of our lab sessions as an experiment, because we were studying germs and microscopic organisms, they wanted us to take samples of anything of our choice to analyze what was underneath the microscope and ultimately uh, uh, leave in a culture dish uh, for the week and we would come back to it a week later. So I decided to do the bottom of my shoes, the strap on my backpack, and a pen uh, that I carried around with me. And when we came back a week later, we found these gross, disgusting, bacteria-infested growths in our uh, little petri dishes, our little culture dishes. Now, I expected the bottom of my shoes to be dirty, but what was more surprising specifically was seeing how many germs, how many microscopic organisms lived on my backpack and on my pen. It wasn't until there was isolation and it was put under a microscope that I realized what they really were, things that were not visible to the naked eye. Now, what I experienced in that biology class is not dissimilar, in my opinion, to what I think many of us are experiencing being alive at this particular time in history with isolation and examination, specifically magnification, right? We are finding things that we didn't notice were there before. In the midst of challenging circumstances, in the midst of unjust treatment, quarantine, financial burdens, political upheaval, a public health crisis, the continuing polarization of online conversation, lines are being drawn in the sand. There's a continuation of inequality and discrimination and outright racism. And in the midst of all of these things, we've been afforded some magnification on our lives and on the world. We've had to slow down. We've had to reanalyze. We've had to look inward. We'd have to, we have to look at systems and beliefs and things that we've just accepted as normal and okay. And for many of us, myself included, we've found a lot of things. We've found a lot of stuff in there, specifically areas in our hearts that we don't want to let others into, and specifically areas that we don't want God to be led into. And through isolation and examination, I see the areas of my life which I am not finding joy in the Lord. Places I'm withholding from God, areas that I haven't let the gospel plant itself in. Where is the joy in the world today? Where are we supposed to be satisfied? How are we supposed to be joyful and flourishing as sons and daughters of a loving God in the midst of so much widespread tragedy and pain and suffering? Whether we're experiencing it personally or observing it around us. Well, I'm glad that you asked uh, because that's where we're headed this morning as we continue our exploration and discussion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now the world around Paul and around the Philippians during which he wrote this letter was not dissimilar to ours today. The Roman Empire was beginning to decay and similar to our West Western culture, the powers were not prepared to allow it to go quietly. They were prepared to use religion for political means, for political gains, but unwilling to be tamed by that same religion. 
Secularization, self-indulgence, and philosophical pluralism ruled the day. And for Christians who had just recently come to know Jesus and the freeing message of the gospel were being tempted to opt into a domesticated version of that very gospel message. This is the Roman world, and this is the world of the recipients of this written letter. And Paul wanted to encourage them to remain steadfast, to remain committed to their faith, and to be on guard against threats, threats of temptation, threats of enticement, threats of persecution and opposition from the world around them. He needed to remind them of the basics. So for us today, as we live in a world where our societal expectations have crumbled, where religion is being used for political gain, and where we're when we're feeling challenged and perhaps discouraged by the realities that we have to live within, where can we find joy? Where can we find encouragement and strength to carry on? Paul here chooses to remind us and to remind uh, the recipients of this letter of the message in the mess. In the midst of challenging circumstances, Paul points to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel message itself and its constant significance for us as well as celebrating that there is ministry going on, celebrating that there is a continual sharing of that message even in the midst of difficult conditions. So let's look at Philippians 1, 12 through 18, and figure out what is the message in the mess. So Philippians 1, 12 through 18, this comes from the NIV uh, translation. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is God's word. Now the first thing that we notice here is that Paul is not making excuses. This man who is sitting in prison, put there because of his boldness in preaching and his willingness to speak truth to power, is stuck. Some of Paul's critics and co-workers thought that, they had, that he had let them down by letting himself get arrested. And many of them, as many of them remained at large doing ministry, preaching, conducting ministry in the free world. And they thought that Paul was just going to stir up more trouble among the political leaders and ultimately enrage the Roman Empire towards more persecution of the church. So Paul, in verse 12, in the very beginning of our passage, he contradicts that logic right off the bat by saying that what has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel message. The reason for his imprisonment, his testimony, his preaching of the gospel message that Jesus had come as God himself and had lived sinlessly and died on a cross for any and all who would freely believe in him 
and receive his grace and love and acceptance. All of these things began to spread even more while Paul was in prison. In verse 13, he says that it was spreading chiefly among the palace guards, that is the praetorian guard. This this guard numbered over 9,000 soldiers. And we can assume that not all 9,000 of them obviously uh, rotated in to guard Paul's cell specifically. However, it was the uniqueness of Paul's case and the boldness and the openness with which he shared his testimony and the reasons for him being there that spread. And he even says in verse 14 that brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters, actually were being more bold in ministry after he'd been arrested. They were being more forward, more confident, more fearless in response to his arrest. There was a willingness, an excitement that gave them poise in the midst of this time. And sometimes persecution can act that way, right? It can give a little bit of confidence to otherwise timid believers, Christians. And Paul is describing this imprisonment and the far-reaching effects of it as excellent unforeseen circumstances. And I don't think it's that different for us here in the year 2020. We are experiencing unforeseen circumstances. We've been frustrated with the realities that we're living in. But we don't call them excellent per se. I don't know if I would call this situation excellent. I know that I'm very prone. I know that I'm prone during this season to look at at 2020 as mostly lost time. I'm tempted to just say that this year is a wash. Let's just pack it up and rebuild next year. But alas, here in the Bible, we have one of the most well-known biblical authors writing from his prison cell saying that his situation, he's, he's saying my situation is actually kind of working out. Ministry is actually happening here. These circumstances have made it more clear what Christians stand for. And how great is it that some people are really out there considering what sacrifices they can make, what they can boldly trust in God for, and how they can reach others with his message. This dude, Paul, is crazy when you read these words. How is it that he can say this with honesty? How can he really be up in a cell talking about how great it is, how good the gospel still is, how good ministry is going? How thankful he is that things have transpired in this way. I think the answer to that question gives us insight into Paul's life, his motivating factors, but perhaps even more importantly, it gives us insight on how we can live in a broken world where pain and suffering are easily found when we look for it, when we're discouraged by uh, the present public health and political, social, racial, and cultural realities. The key is that Paul put the advance of the gospel at the center of his aspirations. And in turn, he is encouraging the Philippians and ourselves to do the same. Put the gospel message at the center of your aspirations. Paul is saying, my comfort, my hurt feelings, my reputation, my misunderstood motives, all of those things are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel message. And as Christians, we're called upon to put 
the gospel at the very center of our identity and its advancement, its proliferation at the center of all that we do, the center of our aspirations. But this is hard. Oh, this is hard work. There's a lot of motivating factors that we all experience, things that we aspire towards, right? Making money, getting married, making a family, having a family, getting a good education, finding a good job, and perhaps retiring early, finding a nice house to live in, a nice neighborhood, having fun, traveling, right? Having, having adventures and living in such a way that we're able to have those experiences that we want. None of these things are bad. None of these things are, are more morally questionable. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing uh, to be despised in the pursuit of them. But have these aspirations, have these desires become so devouring, so consuming to us that we as Christians have lost our core motivation? Our excitement, our love for the gospel message, has it been squeezed to the periphery or even choked out of existence entirely? So if, if, as we saw in the beginning of this passage, that we are called to look for new opportunities for ministry, even in the midst of challenging circumstances, but we are mainly motivated by things or aspire to things that actually push the gospel away, push it to the periphery of our own hearts. How do we make that balance? What's going to happen? Well, let me illustrate it for you. Dr. Paul Hybert was a man born in the 1930s to Mennonite missionary parents, and he eventually became a very accomplished professor working uh, at numerous seminaries and institutions where he taught and researched on such topics as missions and anthropology and culture. And he had a notable analysis of some of the conservative Christian subculture that he grew up in. And in looking at that, he, he had this analysis. The first generation of his community identified with the gospel, and they believed that there were certain social, economic, political, personal ramifications and repercussions of what it meant to believe in that gospel and hold Christian faith. So that's the first generation. The second generation past that, the, the following generation, however, they assumed that the gospel was there, but they identified more with the ramifications of it than they did with the gospel message itself or, or with God himself. And then the third generation, the, the generation that followed that one, they denied the gospel altogether. And the lifestyle markers, the, 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 the repercussions became the only thing that they had to mark their lives with. And we today as Christians, we have to figure out where are we on that spectrum? Do we love God and, and, and figure out how to live and, and how to perceive the world from his wisdom, from his worldview? Do, or, or do we simply know about God? And we live according to what certain leaders or, or, or certain subcultures tell us is right. Or do we ultimately actually deny God himself in the gospel message and, and we just continue to live according to what we've always known or what we've grown up with or what we perceive as, as good moral living. Now circumstances are real. Aspirations in our heart are real. Challenge is real. And none of what I'm saying has anything to do with ignoring what's going on around us 
during this difficult season. However, as we analyze our own hearts with the magnifying glass that has been given to us during this time that we're living in, and we realize, if we realize that the gospel doesn't actually contribute to anything that motivates us, any of our aspirations that we have in our lives, then we, of course, are not going to look at this time and say, along with Paul, this perceived setback has actually made me joyful. These setbacks have actually made a way for unforeseen benefits for my own faith and, the, and opportunities to share the gospel of grace with others. So where does it leave us? What, we, we have to ask ourselves and each other these questions. What is it in the Christian faith that actually excites me? What is it that I dwell on? What is it that consumes your time in worship? What turns you towards Jesus? What is at the core of your belief and religion and faith? Is the gospel still good news to you during this season? Is the gospel good news no matter what the circumstances? And man, did, did these questions cut to my heart. And, I, and I'm thinking about the things that motivate me, right? Like comfort, comfort. I want a little bit of money. I want peace in my household. I, I, I want uh, goodness for my bottom line. Acceptance. I want people to think, yeah, we like him. We want him around us. We want him in our crew. This is, this is an okay person. Respect. I want people to think, yeah, he's got something to say. Let's hear his voice. He's important. He matters. And love. I want people to care about me and care about my well-being and for those that are close to me. And those aren't bad things. Yet again, these, these are things that aren't bad. But they seem pretty selfish to me. All of these things were about I, things that I wanted to be true around me or for to be true of others around me. And it's hard for me to put aside my own personal motivations and aspirations. I don't want to be Christ-centered. I don't want to be gospel-centered. I want to be Jacob-centered. That's a nice little center for me. This is my natural inclination. This is how I naturally believe, apart from anything else. So what's going to change that natural disposition? What is going to be the thing that turns me towards ministry, towards others, towards service and love and care and Christ-likeness and spiritual growth and confidence in my faith? Where is the source of Paul's joy and satisfaction? Where is the source of my joy and satisfaction? I think one of the reasons that I and many of us often find joy and satisfaction far away and at a distance and why we see ourselves unmotivated to engage in, in ministry, whether it be during this season or not, it's because we haven't been gripped consistently by the gospel message itself. Paul here has been utterly transformed, transformed by his interaction with Jesus. The gospel changed his heart, it changed his motivation, it changed his whole life. All the way to the point where late in this passage he says he doesn't even care that some of his friends, some of his co-laborers are slandering him and doubting his maturity. As long as they continue to preach the gospel, then that's all that matters. 
And to get a mentality like that, to have perspective like that, you have to be gripped. You have to be transformed. You have to be consumed by this supposed gospel. So what is it? What is this this great gospel message that, that we seem to never move past, right? Why does it always come up? It's always need, it always needs to be the foundation of our lives, of our faith. Why do we just talk about it over and over and over? Well, friends, I have good news and I have bad news. First, the bad news. The bad news is that you're sinful. All of us are. All of us are. We're selfish. We're lazy. We're ungracious. We're undeserving. But the good news The good news is that, nevertheless, despite our sinfulness, Jesus Christ, God himself, came to this world, was born like a little baby, just like we were, lived, was murdered, and rose from the dead. Thousands saw him in his life, and hundreds saw him after he rose again. And in doing so, he made payment for our very souls. He made a way for us in his infinite love and grace. He made us holy and righteous, though we are sinners and gravely, gravely imperfect. And not only are we saved from separation from God and saved to an eternal peace with him after this life, but we are also offered absolute joy and satisfaction and peace and acceptance and flourishing and fulfilling work in this life right here, right now, in 2020, in the middle of coronavirus. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And this is wild stuff. And in fact, it's the type of stuff that Paul was saying in Jerusalem, in public, and eventually to uh, the, the local ruling body, the imperial governors, that got him sent to prison in the first place. This is the very message that had people calling Paul crazy and put in prison. That's the good news. That is the gospel message. You are way more sinful than you even know, but you are also way more loved than you could possibly imagine. And a life of flourishing is offered to us should we respond to that free gift. The gospel message, accepting the free gift, is like walking into a bank with huge amounts of debt, And not only do they forgive your debt, but they also fill up your account with millions and millions of dollars. You've been forgiven of your sins, but you have also been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. Let me say that again. You have been forgiven your sins, but you have also been credited, credited with the righteousness of Jesus. And that's how God sees you now, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, approved, accepted, celebrated, praised, cared for, loved, because that's the way that God sees Jesus. And that's it. That is the message. That is the message in the mess that Paul is sending. And the more that we dwell on it, the more that we read it, the more that we practice it among one another, the more that we take it out into our community and share it, the more we see it work, the more we see ourselves grow and trust in it and identify with it. 
The message in the mess is that Jesus is still on the throne. It's liberating. It's liberating to know that no matter what happens, God is not ever out of control. God is never not in control. He's never not seeing us, not hearing us, not caring for us, not overseeing all of creation. And there will be people who put the gospel first in their aspirations, who revel in it, who preach it, who cherish it. They'll read and explore God's word in the Bible. They will look to Christ when they need wisdom and strength. They'll look to his words and his teachings and his actions and his lifestyle and his disciples and his followers. And from that base, from that foundation, they will move from the core of Jesus out into broader social agendas and missional work. Let me say that again. From that base, they will move from the core of Jesus out into broader social agendas and missional work because the motivating center is the gospel. I want to be one of those people desperately. I want our church to be filled with that kind of people. And just like we saw with Dr. Heibert's example earlier, we are less than a single generation away from denying the gospel message itself. That is, if we lose sight of it here and now. God may have called you to be a stay-at-home parent, an engineer, a banker, a, a, a chemist, a teacher, a a plumber, a truck driver, maybe you're even a CFO of a big company, maybe you're a small business owner, maybe you're a governor, maybe you're a president of the United States. But no matter where you find yourself, for a healthy, thoughtful, present, wholehearted Christian, the gospel should always remain at the center. Put the gospel first in your aspirations. Let it be the lens with which we view the world. It's only then that we will be able to endure the challenging season that we're in and the challenging seasons ahead. It is only then that we will be able to endure, like Paul, misunderstandings, misrepresentations from the world and even from other Christians. It is only then that we will be able to say alongside Paul in this passage, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And let's rephrase that for ourselves. I want all to know that what has happened to us in 2020 can and will, we're committing to it, can and will serve to advance the gospel in our world, in our country, in our city, in our church, and in ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And we ask that you would challenge us to see the ways that we're not believing the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would not move past it, but we would be constantly reminded of its importance and ultimately that it's the motivating factor for us for all of life. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.